on your Bibles too. It won't take you very long. I got a question for you this morning. Don't worry right this second about where to open your Bibles to. It won't take you very long to find uh, our passage, I, I trust. But I just want to know, when you think about Christmas, uh, how many how many Christmas passages are there? How much of the Bible is talking to us uh, about Christmas? You've obviously got your, your Luke 2, that's your big text. You've obviously got your Matthew 1, you get some text there. You go to John 1 and you see kind of a, a, a God's perspective view of what's going on in, in the incarnation. Those are obviously your big Christmas text. I will concede that to you. But it's my proposal to you this morning, and it really is this proposal that's going to drive where we turn for the next uh, few Sundays as we approach Christmas. The vast, vast majority of the Bible is anticipating Christmas. It's like, a, it's like a Christmas card. Think about it like a Christmas card. You know what we do with Christmas cards? We sit around and we look and it's like, yeah, I don't know if you guys have a calendar or not, but here's a picture of me and my family or my dog or whatever. And I just want to let you know, like, hey, Christmas is coming. The Bible's doing that. Not in those words, not with Santa and snowman and reindeer to corner yard, but the Bible is trying to tell you like, hey, Christmas is coming. Like Christmas is on the way. Be ready. Be on the lookout for Christmas. And you say, okay. Well, if that's true, if that's, if that's your proposal, that the majority of the Bible is anticipating Christmas, like, where does that start? How far does that go? And the answer is to the beginning, like to the very beginning. So if you would, uh, take your Bibles out with me and make your way over to Genesis chapter 1. All right. All right, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, uh, we, your people, come seeking you in your word. We ask that you would reveal yourself to us. We profess because your word teaches us that your word is living and active and is at work in us. And so, Lord, uh, make it be at work in us right now by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, where do we start? In the beginning. We've got to go all the way back to the beginning. And what we're going to try to do this morning is we're going to try to cover a good bit of ground. Just be aware of that. We're going to have to do two things in order to kind of get where we're going. I'm going to have to summarize a good little bit, so just be on the lookout for that. And then we're going to have to be kind of selective about where we stop and spend our time and camp out. So those are our two little preconditions for what's about to happen here. But we are going to try to start all the way back in the beginning. And so we read our text, and our text says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In our anticipation of Christmas, we've got to start with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you say, okay, well, what does, what does that mean? And I know it's just going to come as a shock to you, but when it says that, like, I believe it, it means, like, what it says it, it means. Like, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which I take to mean that there was a time where nothing else existed but God. It was just God. God was in the beginning, before the foundation of space, which means before the foundation of time, God was and is and always has been and always will be. And and he said in the beginning, I want to create this. I will will create. So in the beginning, God's there and then God creates and things come into existence because God creates them. 
that's what I believe the Bible is teaching when it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That means there wasn't nothing else and God made everything that ever is and ever will be. And then we see, we begin to see, that this God who has acted to create is also acting to continue on in his creation. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So God has created, his Holy Spirit is present and active and he is continuing to act. So it takes us to verse 3. Here comes day 1 of creation. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Okay, so on the first day of creation, what we see come into existence is light. And light comes into existence because God says, I want it to come into existence. Like, let there be light. And so there is light because God has between light happens there for you on the first have light and we have darkness we have day and we have night that happens there for you on the first day we continue on and we'll, I will summarize as much as I possibly can in verse 6 we start to begin reading about things that happen on the second day and in a nutshell what happens on the second day is God creates the heavens and the earth in the sense that he divides them from one another he makes this distinction between the heavens and between the earth that happens on the second day Day On the third day, beginning in verse 9, what we see happening on the third day is the Lord gathers the waters together so that they're where they belong, which makes a way for there to be dry land. And on that dry land, the Lord then says, I want there to be vegetation. Let there be vegetation. So the vegetation begins to grow in its, in its infant state right there on the third day. And that takes us all the way down to the fourth day in verse 14. And on uh, the fourth day, the Lord creates the sun... In the moon, so this greater light and this lesser light, that happens there for you on uh, the fourth day. And so just be aware that in creating the, the greater light, the sun, and creating the lesser light, the moon, what the Lord has now done with that is he's created things like times and seasons. So their course is set on the fourth day of creation. Just catch that. Come the fourth day of creation, the Lord has already baked into the cake the reality that you can set your watch and you can turn your calendar and you can plan when you're going to plant and harvest your crops because of seasons, because of what's happened on the fourth day with the Lord creating this in an orderly fashion with their trajectory set, with reliability and dependability baked in. That's on day four for you. And I would just point this out before we go any further as well. Maybe you're one of those people who's like looking for the, you're sensitive to thinking about the new heavens and the new earth and you're thinking about what our eternal state is going to be like. Just be aware that that the fourth day helps us a little bit. Because note that light and darkness, that's a first day thing. The sun and moon are a fourth day thing. Brothers and sisters, there was a time when there was light and it wasn't because there was a sun. The Lord wanted there to be light, and light existed because he willed for it to exist, and that will be the case in our eternal state. The Lord our God and the Lamb will be our light. It's not dependent on these natural means. The natural means exist because the Lord has created them and has set our clocks to them. That's there for you on day four. Day five. Day five is a really important day because you know what? The waters got stuff in them. Fish were created on the fifth day. In addition to that, we get the, the, all these creatures in the water. And we get all these creatures that belong in the air. We get our, our birds. Here they 
are and they're able to fly and they're above the, the, the expanse. They're in the heavens. We get fish, we get birds. Big day, day number five. Not nearly as big as day number six. Day number six begins in verse uh, 24. And on the sixth day, we see the Lord God create all these different land animals. And then we see the Lord God create humanity, the creation of man. So uh, pick up with me in verse 26. Us make man in our image after our like, and over all the earth. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Well, if you're paying any attention at all, what you're going to notice in verse 26 is this, these plural pronouns. Like you see that, right? The us and the, and the our and the us again, right? That's all weaved through there. Create man in our own image. What that's attesting to very clearly right here in the very beginning is that this God who is in the beginning and was in the beginning and always has existed and always will exist, this God is not, uh, he's, he's not a Unitarian God, he's a Trinitarian God. So there's a very real sense, hear me on this, I'm, I have no problem telling you that the Bible teaches that the Lord our God is one. We worship one God and only one God. And the Bible then very clearly teaches us that that one God exists as God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. To the extent that the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Spirit, nor the Spirit the, the Father, but there are three persons who are the one being God. Now, I have no problem also conceding that our human brains are not super well equipped to, to fully grasp all of that. We may never grasp all of that this side of eternity. But I have no problem telling you that is very clearly what the Bible teaches as we consider the data and as we consider the New Testament. Okay. Brothers and sisters, we, we serve a God and our God is God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Maybe, though, the focus of this text is on the fact that we've been created in his image. That seems to be where, where the emphasis lies. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. What does that mean? What does it mean that God would create us in his image after his likeness? Because he restates it again in 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Like It seems like God wants you to catch that. That humanity has been created in the image of God. That seems very important to the Lord because he just told you that twice. What does that mean? I don't think we have to go far and wide searching for our answers. I think the text tells us. I think the Lord has answered that question that we're asking because there's a sentence between those repetitions. In our image, and in our image, it's bracketed by something right there in verse 26. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Brothers and sisters, this is what it means for us to be created in the image of God. That we would have dominion. That we are a people created by God to exercise dominion. unique. And brothers and sisters, we are really, really, the fact that you're a, a feeling, lots of them, but they're all derivative of this main function. The fact that you're a, a feeling and thinking and emotional and volitional 
person who has a soul is very, very unique. But the reason it's that unique is because you're uniquely equipped by God to exercise dominion over his creation on his behalf. Created in the image of God to exercise dominion and the rest of the chapter explains and extends and elaborates on what that looks like. Verse 28. And God blessed them, these image bearers. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Brothers and sisters, these are the first six days of creation. All this has taken place in six days. And we see the Lord rest on the seventh day. Uh, let me just pause here for a moment to, to clarify what I mean when I say that. Uh, I believe that the world was created in six days. And when I read the text and see things like it was evening and it was morning, that leads me to believe they were six, plain old, regular, 24-hour, sun comes up, sun goes down, days. So I'm conceding. Hear me? I believe that the Lord supernaturally created the world. Now, there are a lot of folks. There are a lot of folks who are hunting around in Genesis 1 to try to find space for us to, to, to allow Genesis 1 to kind of coexist with the, the popular theory that uh, people that the government has deemed experts are telling us this is how the world exists and we're buying our textbooks from them and putting them in public schools. The, 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 the idea that the world is plainly, clearly, obviously 4.543 billion years old, give or take 50 million years. That's precision, right? Give or take 50 million years. Okay? But I just want to say, I don't think there's space. I can't find it. I don't see it. The Bible is not inviting us to make room for the Big Bang Theory. So this, brothers and sisters, is just one of those areas where you're going to have to maybe look at the people whom society has deemed experts. I know it's going to be really hard for you. And just say, like, I don't think you know what you're talking about. I just, I just dissociated the world. When you say something like, I believe God created the world, you don't have to turn around and pretend like that doesn't make any sense. Because when you're saying, I believe God created the world, you're looking out at a world that looks pretty intentionally designed and pretty orderly, and these seasons do keep coming, and the sun does keep coming up, and like all those things keep functioning, and the tides keep, like, what's going on? Very, it looks designed. So you can just say, I think God designed the world. And you don't have to apologize for that. You don't have to feel like a dummy for saying that. Because I just want to remind you again, the people who are saying the other thing are saying, we believe that everything that exists came into existence randomly by chance and has no purpose. And we also believe that that happened 4.543 billion years ago, give or take 50 million years. 
And we've confirmed that. We've affirmed that. Given this like test that we created, which its reliability is only good to about a couple thousand years verifiably. But we have great confidence in our theory that the Big Bang Theory is legit and that all this just kind of randomly came into existence and happened. Brothers and sisters, you can say, I believe God created the world, period, without feeling like a dummy for saying that. Just say it. Because the people who are saying this is all random and this is all exists for no real purpose turn around and have a really hard time living, living consistently with that profession. It makes sense for Christians to protest things. It makes sense for Christians to say, we won't want human rights violated. We don't, we don't like what people are doing uh, to the world. We, we, we care about them. It makes sense for Christians to say that. It makes no sense for a scientific naturalist to say that. Because you're saying everything's random and nothing means anything, but I'm going to go out in the street and yell about rights. Very hard to live consistently with that. Very hard to live in God's world acting like nothing means anything when you turn around and act like things mean things. But if you actually lean on the Bible instead of shying away from the Bible, you will get a very consistent worldview from the Bible that helps you make sense of that. That helps you make sense of why all people everywhere turn around and live their life like it means something. There's a reason people get out of bed in the morning and pretend that they at least have a purpose whether they've created it or not. And that reason is they've been created, verse 27, in the image of God. And they cannot get away from it. The Bible explains that data the alternative worldview does not explain that data. Brothers and sisters, you can just say God created the world and not feel sorry for saying that. You don't have to make room for the Big Bang Theory in your reading of Genesis 1. Furthermore, Genesis 1 is not inviting you to do that. So, in six days, God created the heavens and the earth, and there's a little brief description of how that all went down. And then we shift gears into chapter Two, and as we shift gears into chapter two, we we continue to see God as Creator. You get the first uh, three verses we're dealing with God resting, and then beginning in verse five, we see this kind of we've seen the thirty thousand foot view of God's creation of all these things, specifically man, and now we're back to talking about God's creation of man, and that's right there for you in verse five. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had sprung up. The Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and it was watering the whole face of the ground. It was then, verse 7, that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. Okay, we're just going to pause, pause again. The Bible is not, leaves you no room to say that man came into existence by any other means than God directly creating him. He is, according to the Bible, he has not evolved out of any different life form. Like, he was created from the dust by God, and the reason he lives is because God has made him to live. That's why man exists, because God says, I want him to exist, and has created him. So, in case you can't catch it, We've made it all the way to Genesis 2-7. And the only thing that you've really seen thus far in the text is that God is the creator. 
He's created all things. And we've made it now. We're, we're working our way into his creation of this man. And so just be aware that when God creates things, if we will actually stand on the Bible and say, yes, God has created things, you're also going to have to stand on the Bible and say, therefore, God owns these things. He has authority over these things. They're his. They belong to him. He has the creative intellectual property rights to everything. And everything quite clearly includes me and you. Because the Bible is teaching that God created man. And you see that right there for you. No way to get around it in chapter 2, verse 7. Well, in chapter 2, verse 8. In chapter 2, verse 8, we get in, into God creating this garden. God creates the Garden of Eden. You see a description of it from verses 8 all the way down through verses 14. You've got a description there for you. And then in verse 15 in chapter 2, the man whom God has created, and this garden which God has created, they meet. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, hey, you may surely eat, of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The man whom the Lord has created comes into contact with this garden that the Lord has created. And the Lord, who has authority over man, now exercises that authority in a very particular way. Because he says, hey, look, man, here's what I want you to do. Work this garden. Keep this garden. Make sure things go well in this garden. That's your job. Keep it. Protect it. Defend it. Take care of it. That's what I want you to do. Here's what I, I want you not to do. I want you not to eat from this one particular tree, the tree that is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's right there for you in the middle of the garden. Uh, I don't want you to eat from that tree. And since I have authority over you to tell you what to do and tell you what not to do, I just want you to be aware that if you do what I tell you not to do, I'm going to kill you. On the day you eat from it, you're going to die. You, you will have signed your own death warrant on the day that you eat from that tree. So Adam, here's what I want you to do. Protect this garden. Make sure things go well in the garden. Here's what I don't want you to do. Don't eat from that tree. Come out, don't, just don't do it. I've got the right to tell you to do that because I'm your maker. And so man, who's supposed to exercise dominion, has now been given a place to exercise dominion, told very, very clearly how that's supposed to go down, what he ought to do, what he ought not to do. And then, okay, here you come. Maybe you're a woman. You're saying, okay, where do I fit in this story? I'm not even here yet. Here you are. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So we come to verse 18. The man has been given a very specific charge, a very specific commission. I want you to go here, exercise dominion over this. I want you to do this, make sure things go well in the garden. I don't want you to eat from that, that tree, and I'm going to give you a helper to help you do your job. And so in verse 18, we start the search, start the quest for a helper. Who can help the man? Who can help the man exercise his dominion in this garden? Let's see. Verse 19, out of the ground, 
And the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called every living creature, that was its name, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So brothers and sisters, here's, here's what just happened. Like, so that we like, could not miss it. The Lord has paraded every creature ever in front of this man, Adam, and has said, Adam, I want you to see him and I want you to name them. Like you, you look at him, you inspect him, you think about him, you think up a name for him, you do all that. And in Adam's doing of that, in Adam's encounter with every creature in the world, he cannot find a helper. We don't have a helper. We've looked at every other creature in the world and we don't have a helper. Here's why we don't have a helper, brothers and sisters, because his job is to exercise dominion. What does it take to exercise dominion? You have to be created in the image of God. If only we could have someone else created in the image of God with inherent dignity and worth and value and a soul, somebody who has emotions, somebody who has feelings, somebody who can have a relationship with God and help this man exercise dominion. Like, Oh, if we only had someone else, who in the world could that someone else be? You already know because you were paying attention in chapter one. We need a female. Verse 20, 21, here she comes. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Okay, one more time. I promise we're, we're probably maybe gonna stop doing this. But look, just one more time. The Lord made the woman. I've played with bones before. I've never created anything out of the, like nothing has ever started living because I handled a bone This is divine, supernatural creation. That's what the Bible's teaching. That the Lord acted as the creator, and now by the time we've made it through, verse 22, he's the creator of all things ever, and specifically what you just got an account of is the creation of man as male, and of humanity, male and female. He owns them. They're his. They belong to him. He has the right over them to call them to give an account. He's given them a very specific charge, a very specific thing to do. He told Adam, I want you to work this garden, keep this garden, protect this garden, make sure things go well in the garden, don't eat from the tree. Here's another image bearer made from you, for you, to help you. Y'all got a task. Here's how the man responds to this gift of a helper. The man said, verse 23, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Yeah, she'll do. We found her. We've been looking. We haven't found what we need. This is what I need. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And brothers and sisters, like Eve really is bone of his bone and, and flesh of his flesh. Like the kinship that's been created in this bond is the closest kinship you could possibly imagine. And it's so close that it serves as an example for us because verse 24 tells us this is still going on. Therefore, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Brothers and sisters, this whole marriage thing is a big deal. It's a really big deal. 
It's such a big deal that the closeness and the intimacy that's created with this one flesh union that we call marriage, it's so tightly bound together that it trumps every other relational tie we have. Like there's a point. Are people who've been married or people who are going to be married are working through this right now. We've had conversations about it right now. Like there comes a point when a marriage is formed, a one flesh union is formed. You've now entered into a covenant and a commitment and a relationship which redefines every other relationship you have, including the people who brought you into the world. This relationship now trumps that relationship. This relationship now has to take priority over that relationship. This is a massive deal. One flesh union, the tightest possible relationship that you could ever have. God's designed it intentionally, on purpose, for a reason. It is the first and foundational institution in all of society. It's created for you right there by the time we get to the end of Genesis chapter 2. And then we go to Genesis chapter 3. So now uh, we have the man whom God has created, the woman whom God's created from man. And we have this garden that's been created for man and now his helper to exercise dominion over. And here comes the intruder into the garden. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So here comes uh, the serpent. We don't have to wonder who the serpent is. The book of Revelation, chapter 12, tells us really, 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 really clearly, this is Satan. You read about the serpent in the garden, you're talking about Satan. So here, here comes Satan. And Satan has a little, little tactic he wants to utilize here as he's going to attempt to introduce sin into the world. Uh, the first thing is he wants to subvert the family order. The second thing is he wants to create doubt around the legitimacy of God's word. You notice that he goes to talk to the woman. Very eager to bypass Adam. Let me not deal with this man who's been the one charged to exercise dominion over the garden. Let me go to his helper. And, and Adam... Apparently quite comfortable to allow himself to be bypassed because we're going to find out in verse 6. He's there. Very close proximity to this. So he, uh, but Satan, bypasses Adam, goes to the woman. And as he comes to the woman, he wants to know, hey, did God, did God actually say? Like, did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He's changed the framing. You, you've read Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So what God said, it sounds a lot more to me like what God is saying is, hey, Adam, like, here you go. Here's food. Here's the garden. Go for it. Eat from it. Hey, just don't eat from this one tree. And I don't want you to eat from this one tree because it's bad for you. You become immortal the day you eat from the tree. Like, you're going to die because you've eaten from the tree. So, like, don't eat from the tree. But then here comes Satan with a little scripture twist in. And he says, did God, God actually say that? Did your big, mean, controlling God actually tell you that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman, she responds. She's trying to, to flip the framing back just a little bit. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, 
lest you die. Brothers and sisters, uh, the woman has fundamentally failed. She's fundamentally failed on the first ground because she's attempting to reason with the serpent. She's attempting to reason with temptation. She's engaged in a back and forth dialogue with the source of temptation. So I'll just, I'll just say to you, this isn't going to end well for, for her. It's not going to end well for you. If this is your approach to fighting sin, that you're actually going to stop and reason with it and engage with it and have a back and forth exchange with the source of your temptation, you will find yourself in sin quite often. Not a good tactic. You don't reason your way out of sin. That's not how it works. She has fundamentally failed. More than that, she's fundamentally been failed. She's fundamentally been failed by her husband. Verse 6, who's there? As he takes his helper and deploys his helper to fight this spiritual battle for them. So the devil is at the door... And the man sends his wife to the door while he sits on the couch. It did not end well for the first family. It will not end well for your family. Thomas, my, my, my kind of laissez-faire, hands-off, uh, husbanding policy and parenting policy, it's going well. My wife's doing okay. My kids are fine. All that good stuff. I don't know what you're talking about. I would just say, brother, uh, all I can say is that the Lord's gracious the Lord's not only gracious to work through our obedience, but the Lord is really gracious, so gracious that sometimes he's willing to work in spite of our disobedience. But I just warn you, I would not want to be guilty of that disobedience. I would not want to go before the Lord on the day of judgment, having been entrusted with the leadership of one of his daughters, and have to explain why I haven't been active and assertive in trying to point her to the Lord and to protect her. I don't think that's going to end well for, for you. We need men. We need men who are willing to actually step up and take hold of their faith and say, I recognize what it's saying, and this is my responsibility. And we need those men to be active and assertive in leading their families. We need those men to be bold and courageous men. But we need those men, and this is the rub, we need to be humble enough to realize that's got to happen at home before it happens anywhere else. We need the type of men who, when their wives don't know the word, they understand they're the ones that should be ashamed. We need the type of men who, when, when their kids can't recognize sin for sin, realize that it's a reflection of their poor leadership. We will never have healthy families in the absence of those men. We will never have healthy churches in the absence of those men. We need men, men who understand their faith, men who understand the responsibility they've been given and entrusted with by the Lord, and men who are willing to step up and realize the first place we got to step up is in the home. That's what the Word's teaching us, and this is bad news, because that ain't Adam. Adam ain't it, or sick. Sorry, we got to go verse 4. Serpent replies back to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. No, 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 no. Look, little lady here. Um, I don't know what your lackadaisical, negligent husband told you 
And I don't know what your big, mean God told him. But I didn't, here's what I want you to know. The reason that you think you shouldn't eat from that tree, like the reason that you've been told that, is because God uh, knows it's going to make you like him. Eve, that tree, that tree's going to make you divine. You become a god. That's why you've been told not to eat from it. It's not that it's not good for you. It's that it's really good for you. And God doesn't want you to experience this goodness. Now, Satan's reply, and that takes us to verse 6. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a light to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. That's the fall. But you hear people in Christian circles talking about the fall. That's the fall. This is the fall of humanity. This is the moment in time, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, where the relationship between God and man is changed forever. Why is it changed forever? It's really, really simple, brothers and sisters. Uh, they were given very specific commands about what to do and what not to do, and they didn't do the things they were supposed to do and managed to do the things that they were not supposed to do. This is not a mistake. It's not like some slight little thing we can sweep on a rug. This is blatant, high-handed rebellion against God who's made his expectations incredibly clear. Adam, make sure. Like, do whatever you got to do to make sure that things go well in my garden because I'm putting you in a place to exercise dominion over my garden. So, like, it's going to come back you. And Adam has done anything but that. He sinned. He's blatantly rebelled against God. And in Adam's blatant rebellion against God, he brings all of humanity down with him. This is on Adam. The blood is on Adam's hands. And unless you, unless you think I'm, I'm crazy, <coughs> maybe I am crazy. Unless you think I'm crazy, Romans 5.12 says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all, because all sinned. Adam, not only in his rebellion against God, rebels against God, but he purchases a sinful nature for me and you. He purchases a sinful wiring that me and you come out of the womb with, such that we desire to volitionally sin. And as soon as we're able to willfully sin, we do. And because we do, we deserve Adam's punishment, too. Thanks a lot. Adam, appreciate you, Adam. There's been sin. And because there's been sin against the just and holy God, now it's time to pay for that sin. Verse 7. Uh, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they, were, they sewed these fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? Just pause, just pause for just a second. Let's just pay attention to that. If you're sitting here thinking, like, why does Thomas keep throwing all this on Adam? The woman looks like the big old apple eater. I just want you to know, when the Lord shows up, he wants to know where Adam's at. Where are you, Adam? What's the matter? Adam, what's the problem here? Adam, verse 10. And he said, 
I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Adam, who told you that? Adam, where'd that come from? Adam, have you done the thing that I told you not to do? What's the deal, Adam? Adam's response. The man said, time for him to own up, right? Time for him to fess up. The man said, the woman. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It's the helper's fault. The helper did it. The helper did the whole thing. Brothers and sisters, I just want you to think about how ridiculous, how lame that logic is right there. Uh, you, imagine employing that logic in any other context ever. Went out to eat the other night, and I was sitting there, and I was eating, and I, was, I had this hamburger, ordered this hamburger, couldn't finish it all. I took it home, gave leftovers to my dog. I woke up next morning, and I had food poisoned. The dog was dead. I think I'm going to find who cooked that hamburger. It must have been undercooked, and I'm going to sue them. No, you're not. You're going to sue the restaurant. Don't go around blaming your help for something that you're responsible for. It's on you. Adam, you're the one who was told, make sure things go well in the garden. Keep the garden, Adam. Protect the garden, Adam. This is your job, Adam and Adam. Don't eat from that tree, Adam. That's your responsibility, Adam. So the helper, the helper is the reason that you who are accountable for this have fallen into sin. God didn't want to hear that. He's not going to hear that. He turns and he talks to the woman. Let's talk to the helper now. Verse 13. She ain't doing a whole lot better, unfortunately. Uh, Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent. The serpent deceived me. And I ate. Very true. Very true that our, our circumstances change and we find ourselves in different predicaments all the time. Also very true, you're still responsible for what you do. The woman eats. She blames the serpent. And in blaming the serpent, we've run out of people to, to point fingers at. And so we finally get down to the serpent. And here, here's the Lord to the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, and here's where our payment starts. Here's where the punishment starts. Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Brothers and sisters, quite simply, what the Lord does right there in verse 14 for you is he turns whatever the precursed serpent was into what we call a snake. That's what just happened in verse 14. That is not what happens in verse 15. Verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The Lord is talking directly to Satan in verse 15. What have we seen this morning? Where have we been? What's going on? We've seen the Lord God create the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And part of particular part of that creation that we've paid attention to is the creation of humans, man and woman. Created by God in his image for the purpose of exercising dominion over his creation on his behalf. And because he's created them and told them what to do, guess who they're accountable to? God. Guess what they failed to do? Everything he's told them to do. Work the garden, keep the garden, protect the garden, make sure things go well in the garden. No thanks. 
think I'll send my wife out to fight my battles for me and I'll just stay here. See how, how that turns out. I think, I'll, I think I'll eat from that tree. I know you told me not to, but like Eve thinks it's a good idea, so I guess I'm going to do that. We've seen, we've seen God create. We've seen God who, who has the authority to call these creatures to account. And we've seen these creatures who are accountable to him absolutely botch it. And I mean high-handed, blatant, outright, we don't respect you, rebellion against God, the one who's made them. And the Lord, here he is in the middle of giving out this punishment. He does give out the punishment. Verse 19, he, because he said he would do it, he does it. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam, you're going to die. You're going to die now, Adam. Welcome to mortality, Adam. You're going back to the earth, Adam. God's created. Man has sinned against him. And the Lord has faithfully given out the punishment. Man's earned. And in the middle of that, right there in the middle of that, you get verse 15. I will put enmity, strife, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There's a promise. In the middle of the punishment, there's a promise. And the, the, the promise is, here comes a battle. Satan, between you and between the woman, and between your offspring in her offspring, he. Did you expect to see that there? That, that, if you're in the English language, that's a third person. Singular. Pronoun. He. One person. There's one coming from the woman. And this one who's coming from the woman, what, what's going to go on here? He shall bruise your head, Satan. He's going to crush your head, Satan. He's going to wipe you out, Satan. And you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. The promise, the very pregnant promise in Genesis 3.15 is there somebody coming. There is one coming, born of a woman, and his explicit purpose is to undo what Satan has brought into existence. He's going to defeat Satan once and for all. Reminds me of this verse, I read this one time in this book called Matthew. She will have a son, and he shall save his people from their sin. Brothers and sisters, the promise is right here. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, from the beginning, Christmas is coming. He's certainly promised. And he who promised is faithful. So get ready, because Christmas is coming. Would you pray with me?
Uh, Lord, we thank you that as we think back to thousands of years ago, uh, our first parents in the garden plunging all of us into the, the depravity of sin, earning us death, we thank you that in the middle of the punishment, you published a promise for us. That promise is there's one coming. We thank you that we've seen him. We thank you that he's already come. We thank you that right here, right now, we can know him and we can trust. We thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus for us to undo uh, the curse of sin. Lord, we want to hear your word very clearly when you say that it's only through trusting him that we can be restored to you. So, Lord, teach us to trust him, make us to trust him more to the praise of his glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, If you're here this morning, I do just want to say, you can have a relationship with Jesus. Like with the one who was promised in Genesis 3, verse 15. His invitation for you to do that is very simple. He says, would you turn away from your sin and put your trust in me? The one who has promised to save you. You will not save you. Only he can save you. If you don't know Jesus, if you want to know more about Jesus, I would encourage you, talk to me, talk to somebody before you leave here today. You're welcome to do that right now. I'll be down front uh, worshiping with you guys as we sing.